passage this morning is Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up ancient, anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dom dominate me? Consider me an answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. It's good to be with you. Uh, you have no idea who I am. So uh, welcome to Mission Church. If you're new, you're right there with me because this is my first time, right? Uh, my name is Colin Mattoon, and uh, I'm glad to be with you this morning. Um, I am the ministry director for Good News Clubs of Southern Nevada. That's my, my day job. Uh, my family is here today. This is my lovely wife, Marianne. We've been married for 13 years. Uh, our four-year-old Davis is back there, and our two-year-old Ellie is back there too. And uh, we moved here from uh, Northeast Ohio, where we were at for about the last five years. We got here on Good Friday, so I think coming up on nine months or so, uh, something like that. I don't know, I'm a little sick, so I can't do math right now, but you know, however long it's been. And uh, we're very glad to be here in Vegas. Uh, we were in the frozen tundra of Northeast Ohio, and uh, you know, we were glad that God had us there, but we were very glad when God had us leave there. So if you've looked at the weather lately, you know why, because uh, our old house has like two feet of snow on the ground, and the house before that uh, had more. So yeah, so how did we get here? Well, uh, the last five years, I was a senior pastor for a little while, and then I was a church planner for a little while. We were church planning in a place called Perry Township, or the Perry School District, right between Maslin and Canton. If you know Northeast Ohio, we're about 10 minutes from the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And the reason why we wanted a church plant there was because there had been a suicide epidemic in the school district. And so we wanted to bring good news. We wanted to bring hope to this area and to the families that live there. And, uh, you know, we were all excited and all gung-ho. And uh, I hit the ground is essentially what we call a parachute planter, which means you have no relationships in the community. You're starting from scratch. So we hit the ground to do that in January of 2020. And in Ohio, you just kind of ride out the winter and wait for it to warm up. And so it warmed up at the same time that we all learned what face masks were and that we had to wear them everywhere we went, right? Everything shut down. And so, you know, we, we gave it a good go. We gathered about 50 to 60 people to be in our core team. Um, but we were kind of in a, a unique situation where we weren't like a fully independent church. And so we got to Halloween that year and our church that was sending us uh, laid me off. They decided to shut things down just because everything looked so uncertain with the pandemic. And so like so many of you, my plans were completely changed and really wrecked because of COVID. And I know there's a lot of you who've gone through that in the last two years, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm really glad to be here in Las Vegas now and I'm glad be doing what we're doing. But, uh, you know, if I look back at the last two years, like the pandemic really wrecked a lot of our hopes, our dreams, our expectations about what life would be like. And I know a lot of you have gone through that too uh, in different ways, right? Some of you, you've probably experienced the death of a family member or somebody you cared about. Some of you may have lost your own health. You've gone through a really tough time physically or somebody you love has been in that situation. Some of you may have had a business fail or had real financial loss or even lost a home. You know, I know people who've experienced each one of those things or multiple of those. If you're here and you're a young person in the room, like you're in it too, right? Because your dreams about what middle school or high school or college would be like are completely different. Your whole school experience is completely different than what you'd probably hoped it would be. For others of you, you know, maybe you're somebody who came here from another country. You've been completely disconnected from your family for two years. That's a lot of people's story right now. And we could go on and on and on. You know, the, the way that the market has been impacted, the home market. Some of you aren't able to buy homes the way you've been hoping. There's all these ripple effects that COVID has caused throughout our society in the last two years, right? And the, the reality is, you know, we talk about it as ripple effects of COVID and you know, the impacts of COVID. Really, it's suffering. 
we've all gone through different forms of suffering because of the pandemic. Some less, some more. But as Christians and non-Christians go through this time, and we're still in it, you know, there is a big question that we are left needing to ask and wrestle with. And to be honest, it's not something I hear churches and Christians talking about very often right now, but it's right there under the surface. And it's this, it's what difference does Jesus make in our suffering? Right now in the pandemic, while you're walking through whatever it is you're going through, what difference does Jesus make in your life, in your suffering? I mean, really practically, like, do the Christians that you know respond any differently to their suffering than people who don't follow Jesus out there in the world? For you as a believer, a Christian, do you respond to your suffering differently than the people you know who aren't following Jesus? Now, the truth is, oftentimes we do, but oftentimes we don't. Oftentimes we don't seem that different from the world that doesn't have the hope of the gospel that we claim to have. And if you just think about it, how how does the world respond to suffering, to pain, to grief, to sorrow? You know, there's lots of ways. And if you think about the people that you know, they're going to fall somewhere in this, right? I bet you know some people where they just try to deny it or avoid it their pain, their grief, their sorrow. Denial and avoidal is what they do. And, you know, it doesn't work, right? Many of you have been there before. It doesn't work. You can try to deny it. You can try to avoid it, but it doesn't work. It's still there with you once you get past your time of denial. For others, it's just really trying to survive. It's moving on as quickly as possible. You keep moving one foot in front of the other. And that doesn't work either because... Wherever you go, your pain, your suffering, your sorrow is still there with you, right? Some people, we don't do that. We try to feel it. We feel our pain. We're aware of our suffering. We don't deny it. And for folks who are in that camp, some of them get stuck, right? It seems like life just stops the moment that that loss, that death, that suffering occurs. For others... They try to escape, right? We turn to things to kill the pain so we can escape from the pain. And you know as well as I do. That works well for a little while, but you end up being addicted to something. You end up enslaved to something because it's what you need to be able to make the pain stop. And others still, we we try to cope. So we turn to self-help or different religions or different popular ideas in society. And while that can work for a little while, what almost always ends up happening is you get to a point where you're confronted with, do I really believe this? Is it really helpful in any meaningful way? Because the truth is, when you're in suffering and pain and grief and sorrow, you need truth, not ideas that are going to change every couple of years or every decade. So the world responds to suffering and pain and grief in all those kinds of ways. Jesus followers, we're supposed to be different, right? We're supposed to be. Well, today we're going to be in Psalm 13, and here's the good news. It's going to teach us how we should respond differently. What God wants to teach us today through this passage is how we should respond to suffering, to grief, to pain. And here's the big key truth that I want you to see. If you fall asleep, if you think I'm boring, if you decide to tune out for the rest of the morning, that happens, right? Nobody said amen to that one. You didn't want to admit it, but there are some of you here, I know. But if you don't hear anything else I have to say, this is what I want you to get. God wants his people to respond to pain, to suffering, to grief with lament. He wants you to lament. Now, I know part of the challenge for me this morning is that many of you have never been taught on lament before. Right Now, here at Mission, things may be different because you got Pastor John, you had Pastor Travis. They teach through the Bible so they can't avoid hard topics, right? Um, but let me just see if I'm right. So how many of you have been taught in church about what lament is? Give me a hand. Okay, a few of you. How many of you have been taught how to lament personally yourself by someone who was discipling you? I think I got one. Okay. You can raise them high. You can be proud about that. You know, come on. Now, here's the real interesting question. So I've got maybe 10 to the first question, maybe one to the second. How many of the Psalms are laments? Anybody know? 
over a third of the Psalms, about 65 feature lament where they're completely a lament psalm. It's the biggest category of psalm in all the psalms. There's more lament psalms than any other kind, like thanksgiving or praise or any of those other kinds. But yet, how many of you have never heard a pastor explain what lament is in a sermon before? How many of you are just tired of raising your hand, right? All right. So the place I need to start, and I'm aware of this, is I just need to explain what is lament. So the ESV study Bible says this, that the main purpose of a psalm of lament is to tell the Lord about a difficult situation, to ask him for help, and to praise him for helping. So some laments are community or congregational psalms. Read songs there. Others are individual and personal laments. Now, Pastor Mark Brogop, he's probably my favorite preacher, even though he's got a crazy last name. Uh, he's from College Park Church in Indianapolis, great preacher. He recently wrote a book on lament called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And uh, here's how he describes it. You're going to see it up here in a second. He says, lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Lament can be defined as a passionate expression of grief. However, in the Bible, lament is more than sorrow or talking about sadness. It's more than walking through the stages of grief. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Lament typically asks at least two questions. First, where are you, God? Secondly, if you love me, why is this happening? You might think lament is the opposite of praise. It isn't. Instead, lament is a path to praise as we are led through our brokenness and our disappointment. The space between brokenness and God's mercy is where this song is sung. Think of lament as the transition between pain and promise. It's the path from heartbreak to hope. Lament is a prayer that leads us through personal sorrow and difficult questions into truth that anchors our soul. That's why we need to lament. So again, the key truth, the thing I want you to take away today, God wants his people to respond to their pain, their grief, and their suffering with lament. Because as God's people lament in our pain, what do we do? We show the world the gospel is true. We show the world that God is true, that we have hope in our suffering that's different from everybody else. God can use your pains, your disappointments, your sorrow in the midst of this pandemic to show the world that there is hope in Jesus. And we show that through the path of lament. So our passage today, it is Psalm 13. It is lament. And as we look at it, we're going to learn how to lament. I want to make this practical and give you steps to follow so that you can own it and do it for yourself. And my prayer is this is going to encourage you and help you and empower you today. All right, so uh, I'm going to open here to Psalm 13. Now, I'm reading from the ESV. I'm not sure if it's going to be in Christian Standard Bible or the other one, but you can follow along whatever you got. So you can open your Bibles or your tablets or scrolls or whatever you're using today. But Psalm, thir sorry, Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Okay, so I want to tell you right here at the beginning, this is actually my favorite psalm. He didn't know that when he asked me to preach it, but God did, so I'm glad I'm here to preach this one. And I think the reason why it's my favorite psalm is because when I was in this intense time of suffering in my life, this psalm really became my teacher. It's what helped me to get through that hard time. It taught me how to lament, even though I didn't realize that's what I was doing at the time. And so this psalm, it really breaks into three clear points that are how we lament. So let's just jump in here to point one. Point one is this. Do you have the point in there? Point one. 
There we go. All right. So point one is this. Be honest with God about your suffering. Be honest with God about your suffering. It's not that one, but you can listen and follow. So be honest with God about your suffering. And we see that from verses one and two. Right? Four times in these two verses, what does David say? How long, O Lord? How long? It shows us about his suffering. We don't know the specifics of what David was going through, the circumstances he was going through, which I think is kind of helpful. We know he goes through so many different times of suffering in his life. We're not sure which one this is, but it's a prolonged time of suffering. It's chronic suffering. It's continuous. He feels like he is stuck in it and there's no escape from it. And so he just keeps crying out, how long, O Lord? And we see how he feels here, right? He feels forgotten. If you just look at verse 1 and 2, he feels forgotten, he feels abandoned, he feels like God has hidden himself or disappeared, and he has gone silent on him. And so he just asks, how long will you continue to forget me? And then in verse 2, we see, how long must I take counsel in my soul? Now you all say that a lot when you're in times of hurting, right? You've said that a lot in your life. I know it's kind of a weird way it's translated, but another way you could put that is, How long am I to feel anxious in my soul? Or how long must I worry and suffer in broad daylight, as the New English translation puts it. So we see here, he feels sorrow in his heart all the day long. And many of you, you know that feeling too, right? You know what it's like to go through life feeling like you've got just a thousand pound weight on your shoulders that's sorrow. You feel like, It just weighs you down and it never leaves and it's always there with you. And I know what this is like to go through. I know many of you do too. And then he ends by saying this, how long shall my enemy be exalted or dominate or gloat over me? So David, he's a man who's suffering and he's real about his suffering. He's honest, isn't he? He shows us it's okay to be honest with God about what you're going through. And this is really important for us to see because sometimes we forget that. Sometimes some of us think that it's not okay to be honest with God about what you're really feeling. It's not okay to be raw with God about it. David is crying out to God in this psalm. And remember how many psalms he's written. He knows his Bible. He wrote a lot of it. He knows sound theology and good doctrine. But man, he is real about his feelings with God. And this psalm is written to show you that this is how you need to approach your suffering too. So a little bit about my story. Uh, back in 2011, my wife and I, we had just moved to Louisville, Kentucky, so I could do a chaplain residency in a hospital. Uh, I felt like before I was going to have to give account for souls as a pastor, that I needed more experience with death and crisis and trauma. So I went to do a residency. And right around the time that we moved, Marianne began to get really sick. She got sick, uh, which initially was just chronic itching all the time. Uh, which turned into chronic pain all the time, which turned into jaundice where she was yellow. It turned into fatigue and abdominal pain and eventually her being bed bound pretty much and passing out from abdominal pain. And time after time, we would go into the ER or urgent care trying to get help and they would say, yeah, there's nothing we can really do for you. You just have to wait for a specialist. So that lasted a couple months. Eventually we get in and we see a specialist and the specialist diagnoses her with autoimmune hepatitis, which is where your immune system attacks your liver. And so that began this three-year process of us uh, going and seeing liver doctors and trying to get her treated and trying to get her back to health. And each time we would go in and see the doctor, we would have this weird experience where we would walk in and they would say, uh, you know, I've looked at your tests. I've looked at your numbers. I'm really optimistic that We'll just treat you here with this course of treatment, and in a couple months, you're going to be a lot better. You'll be back to being healthy. I think that happened five times. Never happened. So we're seeing this first specialist. That's what they say. And, you know, after the first few months go by and she's not getting better, they start trying different stuff. Well, that lasts for a year. And then at the end of the year, the specialist says, well, I've done everything I can think of, everything that I know of, and I can't help you. So I'm going to send you to the super specialist, the hard case guy, who is the best liver doctor in Kentucky, who only deals with the cases that the rest of us can't figure out. He does that and does research. So we go in and we see him. And 
same thing happens. You know, I've looked at your numbers, I've looked at your details here, and I think after a few months of this treatment, you'll be a lot better. Come back in a few months, she's not better. Starts trying to treat her with different things. And the whole time this is happening, Marion's on high-dose steroids, which if you have been on those before, you know how terrible that is, right? Because high-dose steroids, they're wonderful, they can save your life, but it also gives you insomnia every night. It also causes you to have water retention. So Marion had gained about 80 pounds, gone through fatigue, gone through um, constant fatigue from the insomnia, right? And you go through this weird experience where your emotions become completely disconnected from your thoughts. They don't line up anymore, your thoughts and feelings. It's, it's good to be alive, and steroids can do that for you, but, man, it's, it's terrible. And so seeing her suffer like this, and then, you know, we go and we're seeing the, the super specialist, and a few months in, he comes in and says, you know, I've been doing some research with rats lately, and... It's been working when I did this, so let's, I want to try this medicine. And you know, it's at that point, about two years in, where I just started to wonder, is she ever going to get better, or is she going to die? And, and this doctor was a great doctor. I, I mean, I love this guy. He, he's great. I have no complaints about him, ever. Uh, but we begin to realize there are limits to what medicine can do. There are limits to the help that medicine can give. And the whole time we're praying and we're asking God to give healing, and he's not. And we don't know what God's doing. And so we get to the point where it's the spring of 2013, and um, they had tried a new treatment. And so uh, the, the doctor calls and says, hey, you need to go to the hospital. Because they had just done labs, and her lab didn't come back good. Her white count was really, really low, which means you're really vulnerable to infection. And uh, her bilirubin, okay, I know I'm in the weeds now, but just hang with me, I promise. So your bilirubin should be less than one, and hers was 17. So you don't know how, need to know medicine to know that's not good, right? So she was bright yellow. And uh, so she gets hospitalized, and she's in there for 11 days while we essentially live out an episode of the TV show House. For those of you who remember House, we were, we were a medical mystery the whole two years, but especially during this time, they did every test they could. They consulted with everybody they could think of. Um, and at the end of that, they came in and said, well, you don't have what we diagnosed you with originally. None of the drugs that you've been on have helped you. And what you do have is this super rare thing called vanishing bile duct syndrome, which is not made up. You can Google it right now and see I'm not a liar. Um, but basically, it's so rare. Every question we ask, the answer is we don't know. It's too rare. And so the only thing they can do is give you a liver transplant. So Marion got listed in um, the spring, and then she was transplanted in November. Now, praise God, she's been healthy since. And it was a really risky procedure, the transplant was. Um, but we're really thankful she's been, she's been doing well since then. Uh, but I can tell you, in those three and a half years, it was this psalm that saved my life. And you'll be in a time, or you're coming out of a time, or you will soon be in a time of suffering when you will need this psalm too. Because what it teaches us is that every day we can come to God and just cry out, How long, O oh Lord? How long? Whether it's your health, whether it's your job, whatever your situation is, it teaches us to be honest with God. And I needed that because here's the truth. I realized about a year in, I was really angry with God. I've been to seminary, right? I know my Bible. I know you're not supposed to be angry with God, but that didn't change the fact that that's how I felt. I was mad. I knew it was sin, but I needed to be honest with God about my feelings, even when they were sinful. I kind of laugh about it now anyway. It's like, did I think God wouldn't know if I didn't admit it? Like, did God stop knowing all things just because I wouldn't give voice to what I felt? Do we really think we're going to keep it secret from them? But here's the truth. I needed to be honest about my fears, my feelings, my anger, because it was then that I could actually work on it, that I could try to figure out why am I angry with God? Why am I in sin? And so for me, I, I needed to to voice that to God so that I could ask myself the question, why am I angry with God? And eventually what I figured out, I was angry with God because I felt like I deserved better. That's hard to admit, but that's the truth. 
I, I felt like I deserve better in life. Why am I having to go through this? And it's when I was able to really voice that that I could say and be honest with myself, I don't deserve better, right? The only thing I deserve every moment of every day is hell. That's what I earn based on my merits and my record. Everything else God gives to me is what? It's grace. It's his goodness that he freely pours out on me because he loves me. It's grace. But friends, for us to get to the point where we can work through our issues like that, we've got to be honest with God. We've got to be honest. And it's only by being honest about my sinful anger and my feelings that I get to the point of really trusting. Trusting God, you are good, and I can trust you even if the worst case scenario happens and my wife dies. But for us to get to that kind of trust, we have to keep talking to God. And I need to say that because so often in our suffering, what do we do? We stop talking to God. We shut it down. Sometimes it's because the pain is too overwhelming. Sometimes it's because we just feel like lost in a fog of suffering. There's lots of reasons why. But friends, we can't go silent on God and our suffering. We have to keep praying. We have to keep being honest. So I don't know where you are at today, uh, but I know some of you, you're suffering now. Some of you just came out of a season of suffering. Some of you will be suffering again soon because that's literally everybody, right? I just covered the whole gamut. And David shows you the way to respond to your suffering first is be honest with God about it. So if you're here today and you are a Christian, I want you to know that's what God wants you to do today, to cry out to him honestly. And your heavenly father wants to hear you. For those of you who are here who aren't Christians yet, and I know in a room this size there are some of you who aren't Jesus followers. Listen, we're glad you're here. And I'm glad you're here for this. Because what God wants you to know is that he is here for you in your pain. God wants you to turn to him in your pain and to find comfort. So I actually want us to do that right now. It's kind of unusual in the sermon, but we're just going to stop. And I want to give you a moment to pray now. So let's pray together. God, we come before you now and we do want to pray. And I I want to pray for these folks that you would help them now to turn to you with whatever is on their heart, on their minds, whatever suffering they're going through. So go ahead and pray now. Amen. So God wants us to lament, right? And the first step in that is being honest with God about our suffering, but then we need to move to point two, the second thing we do in our lament process. And that is this, we boldly ask God to help. We boldly ask God to help. That's the second thing we see that we should do. It's in verses three and four. You can look at it with me. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So what's David doing here? He is boldly asking God for help in his situation. He's saying, look at me, God. Help me. He says, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, which I know is kind of confusing. Uh, But another way you can say that is revive me or else I will die. Help me or else I will die. Light up my eyes means all he sees at this point is darkness. And what David is doing here in these two verses, he's asking God to save him and restore him so that he doesn't die and his enemies don't win, don't think they're victorious over God. So he's asking God to take action and to help him in his time of suffering and pain. So if you're here today and you are a Christian who is suffering, this is what God wants you to do. He wants you to ask him for help, knowing that he can and wants to help you. If you're not a Christian, you need to know from this, God delights to help people. He knows what is best and he wants to help. So ask him for help today. And turn to God in your suffering. Pray to him today. Maybe you've come here today because that's 
the journey you're on. You're seeking God. Like that's where I was as an 18-year-old. That was the first time I was really suffering in life, first time I'd really gone through depression, and I decided to seek God. And what I found as I sought him was God is real. God made himself real. He spoke to me actually through preachers. And that's a whole nother story for another day, but God wants to answer you. He wants to show you he's real. He wants to give you comfort. And so to be very practical, I just want you to know and be encouraged today because, man, when you're in suffering, you need to hear this. It's okay to pray big, bold, audacious prayers asking God to do what seems impossible. We should pray for God to restore us, to provide for us, to heal us. And we also need to rest in the fact that when we pray, God will answer however he thinks is best. God will not always answer the way we want him to, but he will answer the way that he thinks is best. Most of you know there are preachers out there who are proclaiming the prosperity gospel, right? The idea that if you speak it, it'll come into existence. If you have enough faith, God's going to do it. If you give God money, then he has to do what you tell him to do. And other lies that are straight from the pit of hell. And the truth is, preachers who say that and preach that, they are liars, they are con artists who are trying to steal your money. You need to hear that. And that may sound extreme to you, I know it can, but I'm telling you, when you look into what they really preach, they are not preaching the same gospel that we do. It's a different religion. And that's why I say that. They don't believe in the same God we do. They don't believe the cross was enough to save you from your sin. You can look it up. It's called the spiritual death of Jesus doctrine. So don't believe in that. What should you believe? What does give you hope? It's a good thing to ask God to help and to trust that he can do that if that's what he chooses is best. We want to live open-handed in life and submit to God's will, knowing that God is God and we are not. And so what he decides, how he decides to act and to answer us is what's best even when it doesn't feel like a, like that to us in the moment. But sometimes God chooses to heal. Sometimes he doesn't, and he brings people into eternity. Sometimes God will restore the relationship that you're desperately crying out for him to restore. Sometimes he won't. Why? I don't know. I'm not God. But I know who God is, and he can be trusted. What God is calling us to do today is to ask him for help boldly and then to trust him. And that's what I had to do when Miriam was sick. I asked God to heal her through medicine or through a miracle, and he didn't do that. God didn't heal my wife that way. She had to have a liver transplant. And so I, was, I know what it's like to not have those prayers answered, but what gave me peace wasn't knowing that if I've got enough faith, then God's going to do it. Or if I give enough money, then God has to do what I tell him to do. No, what gave me peace was knowing God is good. God is all loving. He's all merciful. He knows all things. He's all powerful. He's with me always. It's that. It's knowing those things that gave me peace. And so again, I just want to give us a minute to pray. Let's pray and ask God to help. Lord, I do want to pray for these folks right now. I just pray that you would help them. For those who are sick, bring healing. For those who are concerned about a loved one or a friend who is sick, we pray you bring healing. For those who have relationships that are broken, we pray you bring restoration. For those who are in some other kind of suffering, bring help today, Lord. Go ahead and take a minute now and just pray on your own about whatever God's put on your heart. Amen. Now, I know as I'm up here saying all this, I know that me saying just trust God, it could sound really hard to hear, especially if you're in the middle of suffering right now. It could sound pretty trite, and I don't want it to. I, I want to tell you why you can trust God. 
I want to tell you the truth that actually will enable you to trust. So that's where we're going here with point three. And this is where it gets good. So point three is this. Remember your hope and choose to trust. Remember your hope and choose to trust. And we're going to see there's three things to remember that will help us, enable us, empower us to trust. Look at verse five. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. They translate it as deliverance, but salvation is what it says in the ESV. And both words are accurate there. And then verse six, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So let's just recap. God wants us to lament in our suffering, right? How do we do that? First, we be honest with God. Second, we boldly ask God to help. And these verses show us the third piece. We remember our hope and we choose to trust. And like I just said, there's three things God tells us in these two verses that we need to remember that enable us to trust. I know anytime a preacher gives a list within a list, the eyes just start to glaze over. I, I know, I'm, but this is where it gets good. Trust me. So the first thing he tells us here in verse 5 is to remember who God is. Remember who God is. Look at verse 5. It says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. What's he remembering there? He's remembering who God is, what God is like. What we call it his character. That's the theological term we use. He's remembering that God is a God of love. And this is the Hebrew word hesed. For those of you who are nerds like me, who like Bible words, if you don't, no worry. You're fine. The point is, it's God's steadfast, unfailing love. It's his rock-solid love that will never, ever change, that has always been consistent since the creation of the universe and before it, because God's eternal. God is full of this love, and he wants you to know that in your pain, in your suffering. And you need to hear that, Christian, because I know if you're in the middle of it right now, your circumstances can feel overwhelming. And so you have to fight to continually take your eyes off your circumstances and put them back on God. And remember, this is who God is. He is a God who loves you. Even when you're in pain, even when he feels like he's gone, he's absent, and you don't know how to make sense out of your life. And if you're here, Christian, and you're trying to help somebody else who's in that experience right now, this is instructive to you. Right? We don't need to minimize or dismiss people's pain. We acknowledge it. We affirm it. And then what do we do? We don't respond with triteness. We don't respond like an auto mechanic who just tries to diagnose and fix the problem. We want to be good listeners. We want to affirm how people feel. But then we remind them of who God is. And one of the best ways for you to do that isn't to preach at people. It's just really practical. Send a text message with a scripture to somebody who you know who's hurting. And just tell them, hey, I hope you think about this through your day and it gives you encouragement. Because you can trust that the Spirit's going to use that. Point people back to God's love through the Word. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is good news for you. God isn't waiting for you to earn His love. This shows us God isn't waiting for you to deserve His love or to clean up your life so that God will love you because now you're acceptable to Him. No, God loves you right now. That's what this shows us in your pain, in your suffering, in your time of trial in your life. God is full of love for you. And what he wants for you today is for you to turn away from your rebellion against him, your sin, where you live as your own God. Turn back to him and seek him, trust him, turn to him. What God wants for all of us to do today is to remember his love. And then the second thing that we see in these verses is to trust in the gospel. Trust in the gospel. That's what we see in the second part of verse 5, where it says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation or deliverance, depending on the translation you use there. But what David is talking about here is the hope of the gospel. And so we need to remember who God is, and then we remember what God has done and will do. The most important thing that God has done for any of us is the gospel. Right? We're all sinners. If we're here today, let's just be real. Like We're all sinners. We've all rebelled against God. 
It doesn't mean that we as religious people think we're better than anybody else. No, we are all in this together. We've all given God the rejection in our life. We've all decided to turn away from him. We've all decided to be our own God and go our own way. It's spiritual treason. That's the natural condition that all people live in. We've rejected him. And that's a spiritual crime that's worthy of spiritual punishment. And while God is loving, he's also just. So we can't just let that go. God can't ignore our rebellion and our rejection of him because he's just. And that is a real and true evil that we have done. And it's okay for us to admit that, that bad news. Because while that is bad news, there's good news. God loved us enough that when we deserve judgment, he sent Jesus to save us from our sins, to save us from our rebellion, to pull us away from our rejection of him. And so Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He perfectly obeyed God at every moment. And then what did he do? He died on the cross. He took the punishment that we deserved for our sins so that we didn't have to. And then he rose from the grave and conquered death forever. And what God wants for each and every one of you today is to repent of your sins. If you're a Christian, we keep repenting of our sins, right? Which means we turn away from our sinful way of life and our rebellion against God, and we turn to Jesus. We come to him, and we see that he is freely offering us forgiveness, and we accept that gift. We choose to trust in him for forgiveness and salvation. And when we do that, what happens? We receive new spiritual life, right? We receive adoption where you become his own beloved child. You receive new spiritual life where you are forgiven, where you are given Jesus's perfect righteous record so that when God the Father looks at you, he sees that you are perfect. You're given the new heart and the Holy Spirit which empowers you to obey and to follow God every day of the rest of your life. And the best part of the gospel is None of those things. The best part of the gospel is that you get to have a real relationship with God today and every day of the rest of your life here on earth and for all eternity. You get to be with him and know him like you are seeing me right now. That's the hope of the gospel. We are forgiven, but we are delivered into having a real, tangible relationship with God. And friends, that is what God wants for you today. Because it's when you have that, that a big change in your life happens. And it changes the way you suffer. When that change happens, this world no longer is your hope. This world is no longer the place that you look to to have your best life now. That is not what we believe in as Christians. We believe the best is yet to come. You get to have a new perfect body that will never get sick or suffer or die. You will live in perfect relationship with each other and with God for all eternity. And that is where our hope is. So whatever we suffer in the here and now, we have eternal hope. That is the good news of the gospel for you today that enables you to get through your suffering with a trust in God and his goodness because he will save us or deliver us, either immediately from our circumstances or eternally in the life to come. So when your pain is overwhelming, when your grief is crushing, when your suffering is unending, that is what you need to remember. And this was so crucial for me when Miriam was sick, when my dad died, when I went through all the sufferings that I've been through. When I'm at my lowest, what gives me hope is knowing if Jesus loved me enough to go to the cross for me, then I can trust him with everything. When you are suffering, when it feels like your pain is overwhelming, don't look to you, don't look to your circumstances, look to the cross. Because it's there that you see God's love most clearly displayed for you. And that is what will get you through today and every day until you see God face to face. If Jesus loved you enough to suffer and die on the cross for you, you can trust him with whatever you will face in this life. God is good. He is loving and he will save you if you trust in him. So remember God's love. Remember the gospel. 
And the third thing that God wants us to remember that we see in this last verse, verse six, is this. God wants us to remember, have hope and trust in him. Is his, it's his past faithfulness. God wants us to remember his past faithfulness. Look at verse six. It says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He has dealt bountifully with you. And what that means is God has been good to you every day of your life. God's been good to you when you've suffered in the past. And so often when we get overwhelmed with our circumstances and our suffering, what we need to do is just stop and look back and remember all the ways God has provided. He has delivered. He has come through for us before. You know, when I'm in suffering now, you, I would be a fool to not look back and see the way that God cared for us and provided for us with Mary Ann or when my dad died recently or any of the other things I've gone through with the ending of my church plant. There's all kinds of sufferings that you and I have been through and God has been good in all of them. And afterwards, we can see that. doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. doesn't mean there's not pain, but we can see the ways God has been faithful and provided for us, right? So he has dealt bountifully with you and if you want to be able to trust God, look back and remember how he's been good to you. Now let me just wrap up with this. What happens when we do lament? That is where this ends. What happens when we do these three steps of lament in our suffering? We go on this journey where we, we're honest with God. We boldly ask him for help. We remember our hope and choose to trust. And then what happens in verse 6? I will sing to the Lord. It's future tense. I will sing to the Lord. Because when we go through this process of lament, we see God is worthy of being trusted and we can trust in him and we respond in a worshipful trust. He sings. Now you may be somebody who's here and you're like, I don't really like the singing thing in church. Right? Any men out there saying amen? I know you're out there. But it's this trust of God, this love for God that fuels it. We don't just come because we're doing karaoke. No, it's a response where we in our hearts have come to know and to trust and to love God because, man, we do have hope in our suffering. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to do this in three ways. We're going to respond in worship through prayer. So you can pray on your own there, or if you want, I'll be in the back, and I would love to pray with you if you're going through something or you have somebody you want me to pray for. So come back there and see me if you want. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to sing songs, right? We're going to sing them and we are going to sing with joy because when we walk through this lament process, we can have joy in our suffering and in our pain. So we're going to sing these songs of worship. And then the last thing we're going to do, the third thing, is take communion. That's actually the next thing we're going to do chronologically. So don't let me confuse you if you're new. Uh, but communion is where we take uh, this, this little guy, they're on the table back there, but this is the bread and the cup as we call it. And this is where we remember what Jesus has done for us. It's our belief in the gospel. This is the real intangible way we get to express our belief that the gospel is true. So this bread that's in the top represents Jesus's body, which was broken to save us from sin. And this bottom part, the juice here, is the cup, which represents Jesus's blood, which was shed to save us from our sins. And as we prepare to take communion today, I just want to read this passage with you. It's 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 29. And here's what it says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever then, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now this is why we take communion. And this means this meal is only for sinners. It's only for sinners who know they're sinful, who are trusting in Jesus is their hope for forgiveness and for salvation. 
And that's why we read this caution to not take the cup in an unworthy manner. So listen, if you're here today and Jesus' death on the cross is not your hope for salvation from sin, we would just encourage you, don't take these elements. Like going through a bunch of religious rituals because you think that's what you're supposed to do in church, that's not what Jesus wants for you. To do so is actually to eat and drink judgment on yourself from what he just said in this passage. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, please don't worry about taking this. But if you are here and you know you're a sinner who needs forgiveness and the gospel is your hope, then friend, take and eat. This is our proclaiming and remembering what Jesus has done for us. So if you came in late, go grab one off the table real quick and we'll take it together. But in this packet on the top, you can pull back the top layer and there you will find the bread. As we pull this off, I want to encourage you to take the bread. This is the body of Christ, which was broken for you. Take and eat. And then you can pull back the bottom one. And you can take this cup. This is the blood of Christ given for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. Pray with me. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you have forgiven us of our sin when we trust in you is our only hope. We remember today how you sacrificed for us. We proclaim our belief in this and help us to respond now in worship knowing that we can lament and find joy in our suffering because you are the good God that we can trust in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.